There are uh, two sets of house rules I found uh, also on the internet. In this house, we do real. We do mistakes. We do I'm sorry. We do second chances. We do fun. We do hugs. We do forgiveness. We do really loud. We do family. We do love. Those are great family rules, but there's no boundaries there, really, at all. Uh, you know, no boundaries for unruly parents, uh, let alone children. Uh, and so perhaps this, this next list is a wee bit more realistic. Love each other. Laugh a lot. Say please and thank you. Never give up. Don't play with a ball in the house. Always tell the truth. Chew, swallow, then speak. Trust in yourself. No whining. Be respectful. Keep your promises. Forgive even when it's hard. Break these rules once in a while. wasn't sure whether to put that last one in or to take it out, but uh, recognizing that we probably all break those rules sooner or later, uh, I thought I would just leave it in there. I'm absolutely sure there are better lists uh, than, than those. Uh, and the house rules are there. They're there really for the good of all. They set parameters. They set boundaries for living together you know if we all live by these rules we'll get along all will be well there'll be harmony peace will reign and, and so on and so forth uh, and many people approach the ten commandments in a similar way you know, live by these commandments and all will be well live this way and god will be happy with you you know i, I try to live by the ten commandments that's the best anyone can do is it not and some people even have the idea that the Ten Commandments was really God's A plan. Uh, you obey these commandments and it will make you right with God and all will be well. But because people constantly broke the commandments, then God had to come up with another plan, plan B. And plan B was to send Jesus. Uh, but as Von Roberts says, nothing could be further from the truth. It was always God's intention to send Jesus. The Ten Commandments were never intended to make us right with God. And no one can obey them perfectly to be able to be made right with God anyway. And family rules are just that. They're rules for the family. And the Ten Commandments, likewise, are rules for the family of God. They're not rules for the whole world, which say, if you live by these rules, you will reach God. They are not that. That's not to say that if the whole world lived by the Ten Commandments, that it would be a better place. It would. But the whole world is incapable of living by the commandments, and we are all part of that world. The whole world is fallen, separated from God by our sin. So how can someone who is separated from God have no other gods apart from him? That, that's even a logical impossibility. So these are, rules, uh, these are rules for those who are already in the family by grace through faith. And we see this in the first two verses of Exodus 20. The first thing we see about the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is that it is spoken, spoken word of God. And God spoke all these words. And God spoke all these words. Strictly speaking, the Decalogue or the Ten Words, they're not really laws in the strictest sense of that meaning uh, for various reasons. Firstly, because they were written by God. Uh, 
himself, whereas all the other laws were written down by Moses. If you look at Exodus 31, verse 18, it talks there about them being inscribed in the tablets by the finger of God. Secondly, there were no punishments attached to them. And thirdly, uh, what court of law could enforce a stipulation against coveting? So, strictly speaking, there may be not laws in that sense or rules, but house rules can be seen more in terms of terms and conditions. And the ten words of God, or the Decalogue, as they're maybe better called, are God's, in a sense, God's terms and conditions uh, of his covenant for his people. For those who are under his covenant through faith, this is how we are to live. This is how they are to live. And they, these covenant terms and conditions reflect the very character of God. Uh, this is what God is like. And if you live this way, you will reflect the character of God. Obedience to the law is what shapes us into the, the likeness of God. So the first thing is that God spoke these words. The second thing we see about the law is that it is spoken by the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, let me read a, a paragraph by Alex Mateer. I, I don't think I could put it better. He writes this, he says, The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. The people were given the law not in order that they might be redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. The law of God is the way of life he sets before those whom he has saved. And they engage in the way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God, their Redeemer. Grace and law belong together because grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. Remember what, what Jesus would later on say he, would say, he would say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. John 14, and he goes on, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And in verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So these were, the first thing we saw was that the law is that is it was spoken by God. The second thing is that it was spoken by the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And the third thing we see about the law is that it is spoken to those who have been brought out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The ten words were given to those who had already been saved. And so the aim of the law was not to save them, but to establish them in freedom. You can imagine, here's this, this nation of people brought out, hundreds of thousands of them brought out of Egypt where they had been under the strict control of the Egyptians. They had to obey Egyptian law or be punished for it. They had been slaves for over 400 years. Every generation for 400 years had been slaves, obedient to, Egypt, to Egyptian law. So how were they now meant to live together? There were, there were no Egyptians there to, to punish them if they went wrong. How, how were they meant to live? How were they meant to, to form some kind of society together? What, what was meant to be their, their, their legal 
stipulations. How, how were they meant to live? What were they meant to do now? What did it mean for them to be the people of God in freedom? What would it look like in practice to be the people of God? They needed to be instructed in how to live and how to behave as a people of God in order, to, in order to be blessed by God and also for them to be a blessing to other nations. And this is what it's like to live as free men and women. You know, the rules of the road, the highway code for, uh, are there to keep us safe and to, to enable us to drive in freedom. It's when we break those rules that we create danger for ourselves and for others. And likewise, the rules of the game are there to set the boundaries of free play. When we play by the rules, it allows everyone in the game to express themselves fully. It's when we break the rules that the game goes pear-shaped. The more we tie ourselves into the law of God and obey it, the more we enjoy his freedom. Alex Mateer writes again, This is how we are to think of the Ten Commandments. Not as crumping restrictions of a fullness of life we might otherwise have enjoyed, but as the very gateway to the fullness we seek. They are for our good. The more we obey the law, the more we are shaped into the likeness of God. The laws are for our good, for our blessing, and for the blessing of the world in which we live. And they are only for those who are already saved by grace through faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Because it is only those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God who are capable of obeying them. It is the Spirit at work within believers who gives us the desire to love God and please him by obeying his word. No, no wonder when King David wrote in Psalm 19, he said, The law of the law is perfect, refreshing the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. They are more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. In keeping of them, there is great reward. He, this, this isn't the man who is saying, oh, I'm going to obey these rules. You know, he wasn't feeling oppressed or downtrodden. He was seeing that the rules of God, the commandments of God, give freedom. They allow us they set the parameters within which we can express our worship, our witness, our service of the living God. They make us more like him and draw us closer to him. The Ten Commandments are to, to govern believers' relationship with God, first and foremost, and then our relationship with other people. Uh, it's no wonder that Jesus summed them up in this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And that sort of covers the first five of the ten. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang in these two commands. And the second half relate roughly to the, the, the second uh, five commandments. It, commentators divide them up in different ways. But uh, in a simple and rough way, the first five relate to our relationship with God. And the second five to our relationship with one another, roughly. Um, and they're, they're comprehensive. They cover our actions. They cover our words. They cover our thoughts. Um, and uh, they, they, they cover the whole of life. So in times left, let, let me take a, um, a, a, a sprint through all, of ten, all, all ten of them and ju just make a comment or two about, about each of them. 
You shall have no other gods before me or no other gods beside me. Uh, Desi Alexander of Union College, he writes this, Soul allegiance to the Lord lies at the very heart of the covenant relationship. It is the foundation upon which everything else rests. You couldn't, couldn't have put it better. It's a foundation on which everything else rests. Allegiance to God first. That means God first above our children. Above our children's activities. Above sport. Above our bodies and how we look after them. Uh, above work and our bank accounts. He is Lord, the Lord who saved us from slavery to sin. And he will not share his worship with any other God in our lives. Loving and worshipping him first allows everything else to fit into its proper place. That's the, the cornerstone, the key piece to get into place. And then secondly, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so it goes on. And, and in Egypt... Uh, which the Israelites had just been rescued from, and in Canaan that were going to, the people made images uh, of, of animals and human statues and so on, images to depict their gods, that they, they were meant to look like their gods and they were bound down and worship. And since they weren't worshipping the actual physical gold or wood or stone itself, but the god who was behind it, the god that it depicted. And the Israelites were to have no part of that at all. They were not to do that. They, any attempt on their part to make images of God would automatically distort his person, his character, his true nature. And, and when we look at the golden calf incident uh, in, in Exodus, it shows that the people had been brought out of Egypt, but Egypt hadn't been brought out of the people. They were used to idols before which they were meant to bow down there and so on. And so they wanted this golden image, this physical image to represent God. And this commandment was revisited at the Reformation. And since then in Reformed churches like this one, there is a simplicity of worship. There's no, there are no icons, there are no images, uh, there are no crucifixes, no pictures of God, uh, nothing in all creation and no represent, representation made by our hands can do justice to the majesty of God. And so we, we steer clear of that. Uh, and, and that has implications for us as we think about, you know, about movies and media, uh, you, know, uh, you know, about creating images of Jesus and so on uh, that we might worship or we might create an image in our own mind and then worship that image rather than the true God he's presented, as he's presented to us in Scripture. And especially if that image is of a white, uh, blue-eyed, blonde, tall Jesus that you would see on the on the, the covers of literature by the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and so on. Uh, I believe that's a racist representation of Jesus and certainly not one that we should have in our mind. Jesus of Nazareth coming from Galilee was probably not blonde, blue-eyed, or necessarily white. So we shouldn't be creating those kinds of images in our minds to worship or any kinds of icons. Thirdly, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses your names, misuse his name. And this brings us into our words. You know, when we talk about God, how do we do it? Do we do it with control and caution and respect, making sure that nothing we say takes away from his character or presents him in a wrong way? You know, sometimes even Christian songs and poems can suggest a, a kind of a feminine God that even men 
kind of difficulty relating to, or, you know, we can think of God in far too familiar terms, you know, the big man upstairs kind of idea. We need to be careful of that. And then fourthly, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And he goes on and relates that back to uh, the seventh day of creation when God rested. Uh, and that seventh day, that Sabbath day, was a, a sign of the covenant of God established with his people at Sinai. Uh, and so failure to keep the Sabbath was like showing disdain for the special relationship that God had created with his people. You know, as God rested on the Sabbath, so identification with God would be seen in, in resting on the Sabbath as well. Uh, and, and I know there, I mean, there's still there's a lot of debate about identifying Sunday with the Sabbath and all of that. You know, but if we decide not to treat Sunday as our Sabbath, which day do you treat as your Sabbath? When you rest and when you worship God? If we don't treat Sunday as that day, what day do you have as your Sabbath? In a sense, Sunday isn't necessarily my Sabbath because I'm working. Sometimes hard to see what I'm doing just now is work, I have to be honest. So you could say I don't even work one day a week. But then I'm not going there. You know, I, I, I always remember after, when I became a Christian when I was 19, I started college that same year. And I always looked forward to a Sunday because it was a day off. It was a day I knew I wasn't going to be studying. I wasn't going to be doing any work. I could visit friends and family. I could worship God. I could rest. I could read a book. I could listen to music, play the guitar, whatever I wanted to do. Uh, but that was the day off, and I always looked forward to that day because it was a day away from work. And when our children were young, we always tried to keep, keep Sunday as, as a different day. We would have special foods on Sabbath. We, on the Sabbath day, we would, we would have certain games that we would play or videos we'd watch or books that we'd read. Uh, we wanted it to be special for them as well. And, of course, worship was a non-negotiable. That's what we do on God's day. We worship. We go as a family and we worship. And then honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, Lord your God has given you. And in ancient Israel, family and extended family was like a microcosm of the whole nation. The nation was made up of families and this was God's structure for society. And so to dishonor parents was to dishonor the structure that God had laid down for his society and so to dishonor God. And the seriousness of this commandment is reflected in the fact that the death penalty was required for children who willfully disrespected their parents. I think we should bring that back in again. Or at least we should beat them to within an inch of their life. I am not serious. Please don't report me to social services. That was a joke. But we read about that in Exodus 21. You know, and to be honest, I mean, we know to our cost that when both nuclear and extended families breaks down, the whole of society suffers. Honoring family, including singles and widows and widowers and those without children, as part of our church witness, is part of God's design for us. The broader family. Uh, number six, you shall not murder uh, and this rules out murder and manslaughter and emphasizes the priority that God places in human life. You know, each person is made in God's image. And the basic commandment stands, even though, you know, there are wider debates about warfare and capital punishment and all that. Uh, you, th this certainly has huge implications for the whole abortion and end of life debates going on in our society. Taking the life of another 
can never be a right. It can never be a right because each one of us is created in God's image. And then seventhly, you shall not commit adultery. Sanctity of life follows on to sanctity of the marriage relationship. Affairs are not okay. There are lots of things that, that, that could be said about this and, uh, and the other commandments, but it's clear that God's desire is for harmonious and stable and faithful marital relationships between one man and one woman, uh, and that neither partner should do anything to undermine the stability of, of that relationship. And I think the evidence is obvious that when this is the case, it is the best foundation for children and for the wider family and for the whole of society. Number eight, you shall not steal. Um, and it's interesting that as we read on in Exodus and see the development or the outworking of these commandments, we see that there is the death penalty for some offences related to the person, but for property offences. Uh, the penalties are, are more often to do with making restitution to the person who's been harmed. And it shows that, that God values human life above property. And perhaps that's another thing that our society seems to have turned on its head. Commandment 9, you shall not give false testimony against your, your neighbor. Uh, incidentally, in doing these, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out food for thought more than giving you an expansive exposition of each of these commandments. You can go into these in great depth and expound them properly. I'm just throwing out a couple of hints here and there of how we might think about some of them. Uh, but you should not give false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, from actions, we're back to words and thoughts again in the last two commandments. False testimony here relates particularly to the law courts, but it also includes any situation where lies will cause hurt or, or damage to another person or to their reputation. Uh, and we, we see this commandment, I think, absolutely trodden on today in the kind of claims culture that, that we have in our society today where folk are quite happy to tell barefaced lies in order, in or, in order to get a claim or, or lies that will cause, that will get someone else into trouble without any thought of the pain or the anguish that it will cause them or their families. Uh, and this should not be the case for the people of God. We should be the exact opposite of that. And then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house uh, or wife or male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And again, we're back to, we're back to inner feelings here. Uh, it specifically addresses how we think or feel about things, about envy and greed. Uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made clear that his followers' outward adherence to the commands is, is not enough. Obedience to him begins in the heart. And more than anything, what, what is in the heart demonstrates uh, that, we, that we have no God beside him. If there's a the desire to do his will, a desire to follow his word, and that we love him from the heart, from soul, we love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will want to obey his laws. We will not want to covet anything that belongs to anyone else. It begins in the heart. And so let, let's come back to the community of the covenant, the community of grace that God established, the church, what we are today. Imagine, if you will, a community that loved God before all else that didn't idolize anything else 
in this world, but spoke and sang about God with reverence and with respect. Imagine a community that valued and lived out quality rest and quality family life. Imagine, if you will, a community in which people weren't murdered in fact or in mind or in word, where relationships were fully respected and protected. Imagine, if you will, a community in which there was no theft or lying or jealousy. Imagine how happy and how blessed and how free from anxiety such a community would be. Imagine what a witness such a community would be to the world, a community of grace. This is what God is like. This is the community of heaven. This is the community that God calls his church to be. This is what living for God out of thankfulness for his grace looks like in practice. This is what church is meant to look like. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. And that's what the Ten Commandments are meant to be. To be the way we live that flow from the heart out of thankfulness for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. In Psalm 119, 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver or gold. Is it? Let's pray.